0: Please join us for our service already in progress Grow up That's right, yeah, you you had it, Aila That's right, Peter Pan That is J.M. Berry's Peter Pan Alright, here's a very short one Uh, This this is a famous one, but this is short Call me Ishmael That is Moby Dick That is Herman Melville's Moby Dick Is where that comes from Call me Ishmael Ishmael is the first sentence of that book where he's hunting the whale. All right, here's one. This takes me back to my childhood. Where's Papa going with that axe? Said Fern to her mother mother, as they were sitting the table for breakfast. Charlotte's Web Web is right. Good job, Gabby. You got it. That is E.B. White's famous little book, Charlotte's Web. Remember where Wilbur the pig is saved because the uh, spider makes... Uh, notes in her web. All right, last one. This one I would not get, so if you don't know this one, uh, you, you, you definitely have to know your books for this one. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Pride and prejudice is right. Gabby, you got it again. She knows her books. Good job. That is Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. So whether it is, you know, the story of uh, Frodo and how he wound up with this one ring or this, this young boy Harry and the fact that he's a wizard growing up with non-wizard folks or it's these four children and how they come to find the magical wardrobe to another world. The fact is we like knowing where things came from. How did this famous person get to be famous? What, what, what were the things in place that led to this great thing? Well, the only problem, of course, is these are just stories. There is no real Peter Pan. There is no real Harry Potter. So as fascinating as these are, what we're going to do today, the journey that we're beginning is far more important because it did happen. This is the origin of our story. How did all of these things, including me, come to exist? What does it all mean? Why am I here? These are the questions that drive us into the Bible back to the beginning. So uh, if you have your word, your, your copy of God's word, I invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word as we read from Genesis chapter 1, Verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters." God, thank you for your word. Uh, There's there some mystery going on in the Bible today. And Jesus, I just ask that you both illuminate what you want us to understand and that you help us to be okay with some mystery. You are an incredible God. You are the only God. God. You are the God we come to worship. You are the one who loved us enough to send your Son to die in our place for our sins on the cross. And there are some big implications in these two little verses this morning. I just pray that you help us to be amazed again at you. Your, your power, your knowledge, your ability to create. God, just blow our minds a little bit this morning, I pray. It's in your name, Jesus, I ask these things. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So we are, Lord willing, going to walk through the book of Genesis uh, from chapter 1 to chapter 50. It will probably take us the majority, if not all, of next year. Uh, But there are actually three sermon series we're going to do. First is going to be Genesis chapter 1 through 11. And that's the beginning. That takes us from the very beginning of planet Earth all the way through the the beginning of nations and peoples and scattering across the world. And then the, the next series, we go from Genesis 12 to Genesis 36, and we really zoom in on one chosen family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and how God intended to bless all the world ...through this first chosen family. And then finally, we're going to go from Genesis chapter 37 to chapter 50... ...and we're going to look at this epic saga in the life of Joseph. My hope is that as we go through this, not only would you come and and hear the messages... and, ...and enjoy kind of understanding the foundations of our faith... ...but that you would commit to reading Genesis... And as you read it, if you'll embark on this journey to read the book of Genesis, there's three perspectives in order to read Genesis well. The first perspective, you can think of an Israelite who has wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and is on the east side of the Jordan River just before crossing into the Promised Land. Because that's probably when the book of Genesis was written by Moses. And so he has this goal in mind of reminding the Israelites not in their hearts to turn back to the gods of Egypt and not in their hearts to turn toward the gods of Canaan. And so Genesis comes along to remind that Israelite that there is one and only one God and he happens to be their God. And so when we read Genesis, the first way to read it is like an Israelite about to go into the promised land. The next way to read it is as a first century Christian. I'm going to try to show, and and the other pastors who helped me uh, preach this series are going to try to show that in every chapter, there are foreshadowings, there are symbols, and there are direct prophecies that can only be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So the very first book of the Bible will point to salvation alone, by faith alone, through Jesus Christ alone. So we look at it as that first century Christian, that Christian uh, at Pentecost, right after Jesus has ascended to heaven and the Holy Spirit has come to be reminded that even in Genesis, the point is Jesus. And then finally, we're going to look at it as We are, as 21st century Christians, so that we can remember uh, that Genesis still has meaning and relevance for us today. We're not just looking to learn about an ancient culture and go, okay, well, that was fascinating. Moving on. No, no, no. God's word has enduring truths, and Genesis is no different. I think what you're going to find as we go through this book is that there are many questions that come up today that find at least the beginning, if not the entire answer in the book of Genesis. Have you ever heard anybody ask, well, is there a creator or did the universe simply create itself with a big bang? How about this one? Were the animals created or did everything evolve on a macro scale from tiny bacterial life? Is there a God who decides and dictates my purpose? Or am I free to discover and choose whatever purpose feels best? Is morality grounded in the existence of an all-powerful judge? Or is a morality adrift on the changing whims of societal norms? Is gender male and female, set by the maker of humanity, or is gender a social construct open to change? Is marriage fixed by the one who made them male and female, or is marriage open to debate according to what seems best? Can the fantastic world of Genesis and Eden and floods and Noah and the ark, can can it be reconciled with modern scientific discoveries? And that brings me to another introductory topic that we've got to talk about. That is, what's the relation of the book of Genesis and science? Now, many of you know that outside the church, I work as a civil engineer. And so in a way, I I am kind of like a a scientist, and I don't believe that it does us any good to leave our brains in our cars when we come to church. Um, I do think we should look at the Bible, and especially at Genesis, reading carefully and intelligently that we are not called to be stupid In reading our Bibles, that is by no means a service to the church. And I've been blessed to meet, for instance, Christian scientists. I have to be sure to put a space there. That is Christians who are scientists, not Christian scientists, Uh, who who work, for instance, for the Institute of Christian Research. These are some smart men and women who have devoted their lives to showing that the idea that there is one Creator who made all things—that is not stupid that actually is backed by many scientific observations. So if you're ever curious, ICR, Institute for Christian Research, they have done some incredible research. That said, I've been through biology. I've been through chemistry. Boy, I struggled through chemistry. I I know what a science textbook reads like. And Genesis is not a science textbook textbook. What do I mean? Well, here's what happens, right? Sometimes we come with an expectation that say Genesis will answer any curiosity we have about the beginning of everything. And then we get mad and blame Genesis when it doesn't read like a science textbook. But listen to how God questioned Job. God said this, where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know, I think God's being sarcastic here, or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? We're told in the book of Genesis that God did these things. But we're not told exactly how. What is the molecular composition of every square inch of the core of planet Earth? Questions not answered in Genesis. Exactly How and when did God organize the elements of nitrogen and oxygen into their perfect composition so that the alveoli in our lungs could absorb what we need from the atmosphere? It's not answered in Genesis. In in other words, there are going to be many scientific questions that we could ask that Genesis does not directly answer. But here's what it gives us. It gives us the foundational truths we need to believe that there is one God who made all things. So study science, be fascinated, but don't read Genesis as a scientific textbook. And then don't blame Genesis when it doesn't read like a science textbook. You see, the book of Job reminds us that there's many questions that we don't know the answer to. A good scientist will tell you the more they study, the more they learn how little they know. The more comfortable they have to be with mystery. Any doctor, any scientist will tell you they are far from knowing it all. So now I think we're ready to begin. We're ready to begin the first book of the Bible, the first verses of the first book of the Bible. And this morning our goals are pretty simple. We want to look at these two verses and what they mean, and then we want to talk about what do these two verses imply for us today as Christians. Well, go back with me to this first verse and and look at the first four words in English. In the beginning, God. The Bible is very intentional, it is going to contain all that we need for life and doctrine. But notice how the Bible doesn't start. It doesn't say, in the beginning when people first began to live. It doesn't say, when the first two people began. No, no. in the beginning, God. In other words, even though this is the origins of humanity, the subject of the first verse has nothing to do with humans. The subject of the first verse is God. God is unapologetically the chief subject of this book, not me. This is a complete Flip flop of the way that naturally we look and think and live. Because naturally we all look and think and live as if the universe revolved around numero uno. And yet this myopic attempt fails to get past the first verse of the Bible God is primary. Me? is derivative. Me is of lesser importance. God is of greatest importance. I am not the hero of this story. God is the hero of this story. Do you know that there's a lot of joy to be had in relinquishing the false idea that I am the center of my story? God is central to the great story and the only story that matters. This means he's not part of my life. By his mercy, I am part of his world. This is a foundational shift that begins to set Christians apart from every other human being on planet earth. You live on God's world and are part of his story. Now look at the next word. It says, in the beginning, God created. If you have a, a pen or you're a note taker, underline the word created. The Hebrew word behind created is the word bara. You could summarize it B-A-R-A, bara. It's also used in Genesis chapter 1 verse 21. It says there, so God bara, God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves. It comes up three times in Genesis 1 God bara, Man in his own image. In the image of God, he bara him. Male and female, he bara them. What does this world word mean? It does mean created, but as Pastor Jeff pointed out to the kids, it's unique. Because in the Bible, the only subject of Barah is always God. You're never going to find, and then Adam, Barah, and then Eve, Barah. Uh, human beings can make, they can form, they can do, they can be creative. But the only one who creates in the Bible is God because he creates it all from nothing. The Latin is ex nihilo, E-X-N-I-H-I-L-O. That means he created everything from nothing. And this is supported By the New Testament, the author of Hebrews says, if you're going to have faith, this is what you must understand from the foundation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God didn't start with a gigantic universe box baking kit. He started with nothing. And then he created the stuff from which he made everything. Only God Baraz. And then look at this other part of verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Maybe we ask, well, what did God create? I can remember, you know, hearing this verse as a kid and kind of thinking, well, the heavens, that sounds like the clouds. And the earth, that sounds like the dirt. So God made the clouds and the dirt. Well, yes, he did, but he did a little bit more than the clouds and the dirt. This is a Hebrew way of saying, look up. God made everything up there. Look down. God made everything down there and everything your eyes cross in between. So from down here to up there and everything in between. Yep, God made that. We might say it like this. Every atom across all the light years of the entire universe, God made those. There is nothing that exists that was not created by God. Now look at verse 2. Verse 2 is, as is, is, is incredible the scope of verse 1, verse 2 gets mysterious. It says, now the earth was... Without form or formless and void. The Hebrew words behind the words formless and void, they're fun to say. Uh, Kids, you're going to help me for a second. You're going to learn some Hebrew. This is fun. The word without form, that is tohu. Say that with me. Tohu. There you go. And the void or empty, that's the word bohu. Say that with me. Bohu. All right, so you've got tohu and bohu. It's kind of fun, right? They rhyme. Tohu and bohu, that means when God has first created the stuff, it's not yet ready. The stuff is tohu, it is formless, it is in chaos, it's out of control, there's no order. It's like the swirling, untamed sea. And then it is bohu, it is void, empty, barren, lifeless. There's stuff but there's nothing filling the stuff. It is a barren, excuse me, empty desert, void of life. Now, the reason this tohu and bohu is important, this chaos and this emptiness, this formlessness and barrenness is because when we see God begin to create one day at a time, he's going to deal with each of these problems. What is formless? He's going to form. He's going to bring order. What is empty, he's going to fill. Think about it. Day one, this swirl of darkness, God is going to bring light to give order. Day two, where there's this chaotic mass of water, God will create sea and sky to bring order to what was in chaos. Day three, where there was this formless mixture of water and rock, God's going to bring the dry land and the sea. See, you go over here, dry land, you go here. Order to chaos. Day three, God also looks at that barren land and says, hey, trees, come on, come on up here. We need to start filling what is empty. Day four, where existence perpetuated without the order of seasons, God gives the sun and the moon and the star to begin tracking time to have seasons, order to chaos. Where the night sky was empty and the sky and the day was empty, he said, sun, moon, stars, you fill up this emptiness so that there is this beautiful landscape. Day five, God looked at the sky and the sea and said, you know, you also need to team with life. Sea creatures from the great blue whale down to the little tiny plankton. And birds from, you know, the, the great herons all the way down to the hummingbird. You all fill up the, the sea and the sky. And then day six, God looks to the land and he says, animals, come on, it's your turn. And finally, man and woman, you fill this good earth. So tohu and bohu, what was formless and what was empty, God brings order and God fills, and we'll see more of that next week. Finally, what about this verse, verse 2, where it says, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This verse is mysterious and The reason in part it's mysterious is because we are not not Israelites about to go into the land of Canaan. If we were Israelites about to go into the land of Canaan, this would sound a lot like a popular song on the radio that the little hairs on the back of our neck might stand up because our moms and dads told us not to listen to it. That, That maybe it had some bad words in it or something. You see, here's what's going on. These are some of the same words used in the Babylonian creation story. It's a story called Enuma Elish. And it sounds similar, but it could not be more different from the way that the Bible begins. You see, Moses, I think, used under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit some of the same language so that it would sound similar But then he took a 180 degree turn to show the God of the Bible, yeah, he's better than the God the Babylonians made up. In Enuma Elish, this creation story goes like this. There was once an ancient sea goddess named Tiamat. And she was chaos and she predated the other gods. But in the course of time, she married the god Apsu, the god of fresh water. And together they gave birth to the other gods. However, Apsu made war against his children and eventually was killed. Enraged, Tiamat, the goddess of the sea, took the form of a great sea dragon to attack her children, the other gods. But after a time, Marduk, the storm god, saved the other gods and killed Tiamat and spread her guts into what became the elements known as the heavens and the earth. So in Enuma Elish, violence, wickedness, accidentally produced the universe. In the Bible, the loving care of Almighty God brings order to chaos and fills what is empty. The word for the deep waters in Genesis 2 is very close to the Babylonian word for Tiamat. So the Babylonians think that Tiamat got angry and then her guts became the universe. Christians, no, 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 no. It's not that God was angry and accidentally this world came to exist. It's not a war that just resulted in the universe. A loving and powerful God was hovering over the chaos like an eagle hovers over her own children, like like a, a bird takes care of the chicks in her nest. That is to say, God could look over his whole creation and go, it is very good. You see, the Christian creation story could not be more different than the creation story from the Babylonians. All right, we've got our background. We've kind of gone over Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. Now here's the question. What does it matter? Like, like why do we have to believe that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth? What are the implications of Genesis 1, 1, and 2? If you're a note taker, they'll be up on the screen, but I'm going to give you as many implications as I could find in Scripture for why this matters. First, Genesis 1, 1, and 2 implies God is eternal. He's always existed. This is implied because it doesn't say in the beginning when God came to be. It says in the beginning and then God already was So at the very beginning, there's this character, God, who's already there. And in fact, when we listen to the prayer of Jesus in John 17, we hear that before the world began, oh yeah, God was already there. The Trinity was already there. This is what the Bible says in John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory That you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Moses also sings in Psalm 90 of this eternal God who existed before creation. He says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This goes against. Uh, the Big Bang Theory, not the TV show, but the theory that there was once just accidentally a Big Bang because, quite frankly, if there wasn't, we wouldn't exist. It's one of those arguments of convenience, not of intellect. Um, The Bible says that there was an original cause named God, and He has always existed. Okay, so God is eternal. Two, God alone is self-existent. This is an implication because God creates everything and because nothing existed other than him before he created, including both matter and angels, then he alone is eternally self-existent. What this means is everything else owes their existence to God, except God. He's the only one who exists without anything else causing him to exist. So if you exist, you exist because God wills it. This is why the angels in heaven rightly worship God. They say, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So modern Science assumes that matter is all there is, because that's all that science can see and observe and touch. But the Bible says, no, 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 matter is not all there is. There is one self-existent God who makes matter. That means materialistic notions don't make it out of Genesis 1.1. Okay, so an eternal God, he is self-existent. Third implication is there is a God. Because only God exists prior to creation and only God makes all things, there is logically a God. And he alone would be God. This eradicates both atheism and polytheism. Neither can survive Genesis 1.1. In fact, this becomes the basic approach that Moses has to his people when he teaches them daily to pray, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then I love how the prophet Isaiah speaks about this. He reveals God saying to his people, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. That people may know from the rising of the sun from the west uh, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. So, atheism, the idea that there is no God, and polytheism, the idea that there are many gods, both are shown to be false by Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Okay. Uh, Next implication is God is in control. God is in control because God made all things. If all things continue, it is due to his continuing care. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure that I exist. And if I exist, then God is in control. This is poetically how the psalmist sings of God's ongoing sovereign control. He says, "The mighty one, God the Lord speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting." The fact that we have things like gravity and atmosphere and that the earth spins at the right tilt on its axis and rotates in the correct course around the planet or around the sun rather and that the distance is such that we're not too hot, and not too cold, all of this It's because God keeps doing a good job, according to the psalmist in Psalm 50, verse 1. So, this would eradicate, for instance, the worldview of deism. Deism says, sure, there is a God, but he just kind of got things started and backed off and left creation to its own devices. The Bible instead presents this God who's not only before all things, but meticulously maintains all things. Paul, for instance, will praise Jesus both for his role in making things and in holding them together. This is what he says in Colossians 1.17 of Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You remember the makeup of an atom, how in the nucleus or the very center, right, there is both protons and neutrons, the positive and neutrally charged particles, and then spinning around it is what? It's the electrons that are spinning around, the tiniest little things that we know and that make up all of matter. And according to the Bible, my atoms are prevented from spinning out of existence because Jesus continues to do his job. It is the intentional, ongoing, powerful work of Almighty God that allows me to exist. Think about that the next time you take a breath. Thank you, God, for doing your work. All right, not only is he in control, but this means we should never conclude that God gets tired. I don't know about you, but I, uh, those of you, we had some wonderful volunteers come and thank you all so much. Those of you who came and served at the elementary school on Thursday night, and we had some more come and serve. Thank you. Yesterday at our food pantry, it was wonderful. All total, there were 33 volunteers between the two days. That's awesome. I was tired yesterday. Um, and, and I mean, it's not even that I had done a lot, but uh, we had a wedding last night that we went to and Meg and I were just wiped out after all was said and done. God doesn't get tired. You think about it. This is October 30th, 2022. I have been breathing now almost 38 years. This planet has been existing for some time. The consistency that we could call it the law of gravity proves God doesn't get tired. Isaiah again says, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. You can trust that when God sets about to do something, he's never going to run out of power. Another implication, because God made all things, he owns all things. He made it, he owns it. This is the inevitable conclusion drawn, for instance, in Psalm 24, where it says there, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. If God created it, God owns it. A lot like an inventor. You know, um, too many things I feel like if you find a little tag, say what, uh, made in China, Well, ultimately, everything would say made by God. Ultimately, everything belongs to the God who made it, including me. And that's the next implication. Uh, Because God owns all things, I do not own my stuff. My stuff belongs to God because all stuff belongs to God. This is what God himself declares, every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. That's Psalm 50 verses 10 and 11. So the only one who can declare mine is God. Too often we orchestrate our whole lives around what is mine and what should be mine and what is not yet mine. And the Bible says, you know what? Nothing is mine. Only God can say mine. Materialism then, like atheism, like polytheism, like deism, dies at the first verse of the Bible. Now, because God owns all things, he has the right, like that inventor, to tell those things what their purpose is. This implies that it is not my job to come up with my own purpose. And in fact, Paul envisions this funny idea of something like a pot going to the potter and saying, why did you make me like this? And he says, it's ludicrous. The maker is the one who determines what the thing is made for. So he says, will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? That's Romans 9 verses 20 and 21. You know, according to the Bible, it's not my life. It's God's life. They're not my things. They're God's things. It's not my job to determine my purpose, God is the one who determines my purpose? This all boils down to a big conclusion then that if God owns me, he has the right to declare my purpose because my life is not my life. I am not the master of my own fate. In fact, I owe an account of the life I live to the God who owns me. This is what Paul tries patiently to convince the men in Athens of when he's in the Areopagus in Acts 17. He talks about the creator God when he says, in him we live and move and have our being. And then he pivots and he says, now God commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. If you're created, you're owned. If you're owned, it's not your life, it's God's. If it's God's life, then you're going to have to tell God one day how you lived God's life that he gave you. And the Bible calls that day judgment day or the day of judgment. If my life is not my own The next logical implication is that God is the only one whose opinion on my life ultimately matters. Unlike Enuma Elish that basically said this world and by extension me is an accident produced by warring gods. The Bible shows the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters, caring for creation. Life matters to God. And God gives every life a purpose. And one day we will have to give an account to that God of how we live. That's why his opinion matters most. It's as if, or as it's as the author of Hebrews concludes, God is the judge of all. What your boss thinks, what your mom, your dad, your aunt, your uncle think about you. I'm not saying it's completely irrelevant, but compared to what God thinks about you, that's the most important. What God says over your life is most important because your life belongs to God. So then if my life is actually God's life he gives me and my purpose is whatever God says it is, and at the end of my life, I have to give an account of how I lived the life God gave me, then... I should not waste this life doing whatever feels good. But instead, I should live this life seeking to know God and how to be right with Him. This is, in fact, in the Psalms, what they say is the secret to a happy life. Psalm 70 verse 4 says, May all who seek you, God, rejoice And be glad in you. Rejoice and be glad. Or just other words for happy. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. God actually, we see in the Bible, is looking on planet Earth to see, are there people who are seeking me? Bible says, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. One pastor has grown popular for talking about your best life now. Well, the Bible does reveal our best life now, but it's now and forever found in knowing God. So if God is the one who made all things and sovereignly controls all things, then to oppose God or to try to live opposite the way he says we are to live would be Stupid and pointless. One day it will be clear that to live any other way other than God's is pointless. There was a famous king of Babylon named Nebuchadnezzar, and God humbled this man. And after an incredible saga, this is what this proud king declared All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? If the king of mighty Babylon could not successfully oppose God, no one can. King Solomon similarly warned, there is no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel That can avail against the Lord. That's Proverbs 21, verse 30. I can try to live without God, as if I am a God, but it won't work. If God is the only God and opposing Him is utterly stupid and pointless, then worshiping other gods or pretending that there is no God is also stupid and pointless. And one day it will be clear that there was only one God. Paul charges humanity for idolatry when we make gods out of created things. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. He said, you want to know? When humanity got stupid, it's when we worshipped things that are made instead of Almighty God. Jeremiah is the one who foretold of the day when all the other gods would disappear. He says, Thus shall you say to them, that is the Israelites, The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. That's Jeremiah 10 verse 11 And then he builds to this climax. He says, can man make for himself gods? Such are not gods. Jeremiah 16, verse 20. So we put it all together then. And the wisest and best conclusion from Genesis 1-1 is that I should seek God and turn to God alone that I should try to be right with this God. This is what Isaiah says based on creation. He says, there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the earth for I am God and there is no other. That's Isaiah 45 verses 21 and 22. The inevitable conclusion of in the beginning God Is I need God. And the Bible tells us where to find Him. The Bible says that this one God came to us. He was born, He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross in our place for our sins. He rose from the grave, He ascended in heaven, and one day He's coming back. This is how Paul described Jesus the one we should trust. It says, For by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. I wanted you to see today How many different things in the Bible hang on in the beginning God? And we just looked at the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, but the logical implications have led us to the wisest thing any human being can do is to give their life to Jesus Christ, to worship Him, to ask Him to forgive you on the basis of Him dying in your place on the cross, to Follow Jesus. We're going to close this service, and I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to tell you how to respond. But some of you may go, you know, I'm here, and I'm in church, and I mean, you said a lot of things, but how? Like, what exactly do you do to be right with Jesus? Well, here's the beauty of it. It's not like you have to um, be good enough Like if you just clean up your act enough and you just do enough good deeds, then finally God will look at you and say, okay, now you're good enough. Now I'll give you my son, Jesus. No, 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 that's not how it works. Jesus is given to us as a gift. In fact, the Bible says that God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know what that means? When we were nothing but rebelling against God, That's when he loved us enough to give us the gift of his son. So if you're a breathing human being, God loves you. And you can be right if you receive the gift. Receiving the gift is just a matter of, in prayer, asking God to forgive your sins and placing your faith in Jesus. God, forgive me of my sins and Jesus, I trust you alone to be my Lord and Savior. That's not a magical formula, but if you believe it and you ask for it, the Bible says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so in just a minute, if you've never done that and you want to be right with God, you're going to have that opportunity. Christians, what do you do with it today? What, what, what's the takeaway for the, the Christian Well, my hope is that you've had a little nudge this morning to read Genesis again. It's 50 chapters. We're going to be in it for about a year. Take time and read Genesis. Get to know the Almighty God again from the very beginning. Read it as an Israelite about to go in. To the promised land. Read it as a, a Christian who, who has just witnessed Jesus rise from the dead and ascend into heaven. And read it as you are today, a follower of Jesus Christ living in 2022. From this reading, worship God. I mean, I mean, catch this again this morning. We exist because of God to worship God. I breathe. His air. I drink his water. I use and live the life that he gave me. And third, let Genesis underpin your faith. You're not a a, a dumb person for believing that there is one God who made all things. You are wise. And your faith is built on wonderful reasons. As I close in prayer, Christian, you pray and give this time to the Lord. And and if you're not a Christian, listen up as I pray. Mm -hmm. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that these first two verses of the Bible can rock us so hard. I mean, it's, it's incredible how much is wrapped up on in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God, I first thank you as I just get to marvel at you. The the power it took, as we'll see next week, to just say, let there be light, and there was light. The power to keep everything going as you deem best. God, I love that you are the only God. There's no war in heaven as if somebody could successfully overthrow you. There's no power that can actually challenge you. God, help me to submit my life to you and to therein find happiness. I pray for the person who's here this morning who has never come to a point of giving their life to Jesus Christ in faith, never come to a point of asking for forgiveness. God, would you touch them right now? Hey, if, you, if that's you, you're here this morning, you've never trusted Jesus, I invite you to pray to God in your own words something like this. God, I've not lived my life the way the Bible tells me to, and I'm sorry. Jesus, would you please forgive me of my sins? You put it in your own words, and you pray that to God. And then you pray, God, I believe that Jesus died on the cross in my place for my sins, and I want him to save me. You pray that prayer in your own words to God. And then you pray, God, I commit to follow Jesus as the Lord of my life. With every head bowed, every eye closed, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, would you just...